All right. It's always good to get an update. I love those updates because, like I said, we started it. Now it's sustainable and we're looking to be ongoing, profitable and creating more jobs. So, all right. So we're going to continue our series, How to Defend Your Faith and Stay Friends. But as I was kind of going through this week, I thought we need to stop and we need to take a moment and reflect. It seems to me that it... It's almost always the atheists who ask the questions, these challenging, difficult questions. And it's usually, almost always, the Christian who has to answer these challenging and difficult questions. I think that needs to change. I really do. I think it needs to change. In my debate with Emily, it's usually Emily asking the difficult questions and me answering the difficult questions. But what's the atheist answer to the same difficult, challenging questions without God. If you take God out of the equation, okay, and you start asking the questions back, and this is important because a lot of you, you don't like to get into these apologetic conversations, these difficult conversations, because you don't think you have all the answers. But one of the things you can do to help help people see is start asking questions back. For example... Take God out of the equation. Why is there evil and suffering in the world? Let's get even more personal. Why is my child dying? Take God out of the equation. Why is my child dying? If I evolved from a primordial soup, what's my purpose in life? What's my actual purpose? If I evolved from some primordial soup billions and billions of years ago, what's my what's my purpose in life? Why why am I here? How could nothing create everything? I asked Siri that question this week. I was sitting down yesterday, I thought, let me just ask Siri. Siri, why how do you know how could something create how could nothing create everything? And know what the answer was? Good question, Jeff. I'm like, I know it's a good question. Answer the question. You have all the knowledge of the universe right at your disposal. Why is it? Good question, Jeff. It is a good question. It needs to be answered. How could nothing create everything? If science says that it's mathematically impossible for life to evolve from nothing, how did it happen? How did it happen? What is love? It's a simple question. What's love? Is it just a chemical reaction in my brain due to external stimuli like the naturalists say it is? Is that what it is? What is love? Answer the question. See, we need to start asking questions, and this is why. It's not to be obnoxious or sarcastic, whatever. We need to help people see the emptiness emptiness and futility of their worldview. When you ask these profound, life-altering questions, their silence is deafening. Why, why, why? It's easy to ask us the questions. And then it's funny because if we don't have all the answers for the most profound questions in the universe, somehow God doesn't exist. But when you ask the questions back, there's absolute total silence. Well, today, I still need to answer Emily's questions. And so let's jump in. 
focusing on Emily's response to our discussion that we had the last week. Here's a response to our discussion from last week. I find all the discussion of reasons for evil, suffering in the face of God simply flat, unconvincing. And here are my thoughts on your last post. You say, in creating us, God loved us enough to give us the freedom to reject that love. So God is punishing us for not choosing him? Or should I say, God is allowing us to suffer for not choosing him? Doesn't sound like a loving God to me. At least not the loving God of the New Testament. More like the vengeful God of the Old Testament, whom people have to beg or pray to for mercy. If there is a God, and... If he gave us free will, and if we chose to reject him, and if free choice comes with consequences, how would you suggest he respond? Choice comes with consequences. That's the nature of life. Also, once we chose to reject him, his response was not to kill us all, but to provide us a second chance in Christ. We chose. He takes the consequences of our choice. We get eternal life. How cruel. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't help it. I know you don't agree with the implications, but it's not illogical. The God of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old. You may not like or agree with the Bible, but Jesus does not contradict what is taught in the Old Testament. You see God from one perspective, and it taints your entire thought process. And one day I'm going to figure out why. You spend most of your time reading people who do not believe in God and their slant on the Bible. I've been reading some of the same people. You see a possible contradiction and come to a conclusion based on your existing presupposition. No God and aha, more ammo. I see the same possible contradiction and search for an answer and usually find one. Now, I admit I'm searching for truth based on my belief that God is real. I also admit that I sometimes come to a place where I need to believe by faith. We all do. But my faith is not a blind leap. If there's a question, I try to find the answer. I guess what I'm saying is that if you don't believe in God, then it all sounds illogical. Your base of understanding is religion, what you observe from the outside or by reading the opinion of others. My understanding comes from a study of God's character. Based on his character, I see purpose and plan of God working through the, throughout the Old and the New Testament. I keep using the term eternal perspective, and I know you don't completely understand it, but it's the lens you must see a Christian worldview through or you'll miss it. This world is not my home. It's not my final destination. My, my physical life is a vapor, a mist that is here one day and gone the next. I'm here to serve God and others with my whole heart, to fulfill my purpose, to live my life with relentless passion, and then spend eternity with him. Many of your concerns and questions about cruelty in the Bible are based on your view and not only God, but but your view of life. It's your view of what's fair and right, just and good, based on a temporal perspective. Your concept of morality projected on God. If there is no God, then you don't need to get upset or worked up about evil and suffering. Like you say, it's just luck. (laughs) 
But if there is a God, can't you step back and realize that his plan is better than yours or mine? That he loves people more than you could ever imagine. Is it possible that where your finite mind ends, his is just beginning? If God is real and he says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Why can't you trust that 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 it's true? In the end, he will work it out according to his perfect character. I'll admit I don't have all the answers. And when I get to heaven, my theology will be straightened out. But I am sure that God is not cruel, heartless, evil, or sadistic. Think about it. Jesus is God, and he was none of those things. You ask who's responsible for most of the suffering in the world, and then you cite wars, deforestation, and hunger. People cause suffering through war. Yes, indeed they do, but few and far between are the political leaders that make these horrible decisions to go to war. Christians, Muslims, Jews, and atheists all take up arms and fight in the name of their country, faith, and values. These soldiers are not turning away from God when they fight. They usually believe they are doing God's will. What's more is this, and this is really important, most suffering is not caused by humans. It is caused by Mother Nature. Here are some examples. 300 million, yes, 300 million have died worldwide from smallpox in the 20th century alone. 100 million were killed by the plague during the Renaissance. 200 million were killed by measles in the last 150 years worldwide. 100 million killed by Spanish flu in one year from 1918 to 1919. Approximately 500 of those in America. In the last 30 years, AIDS has killed approximately 30 million people. Malaria kills approximately 1 million people per year, mostly children. Disease getting you down? Let's take a look at some weather-related suffering. 230,000-plus deaths from tsunami in Indian Ocean 2004. One to four million dead from 1931 flood in China. Another Chinese flood in 1887 leads nearly two million dead. Throw in heat waves, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, droughts, and blizzards, and the Holocaust looks like a cakewalk. A Pharisee once asked Jesus, what's the, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He tested Jesus, it says with this question, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. So here's the thing. These words from Jesus are not a suggestion. They're how we should live our lives. This is how we should be living our lives. So you think, okay, what does this have to do with her, you know, laying out all these diseases? Well, it's pretty simple. Um, If we put human life first, loving our neighbor as ourselves, we could save millions and millions of lives. So I went through her list and just picked a few out and did, did some study. So here are some examples of what I'm talking about. Edward Jenner discovered that inoculations with cowpox would give immunity to smallpox in, wait for it, 1796. 
Not, not 1996, not 2006, not 2016, 1796. It was an immense medical breakthrough that, that breakthrough that saved countless lives, millions of lives. See, if we cared, if we loved other children like we love our own children, how many of those 300 million people that died in the 20th century would not have died? How many? Here's the thing. I kind of looked this up. This was eradicated in 1980. Eradicated. No more. It doesn't exist. In 1980. It took 184 years. We didn't have the, we didn't have the communication and technology in the 20th century. 184 years. 300 million people in the 20th century. And it took human beings 184 years. I'm going to go back and say this. When did they find a cure for this? In what year? 1796. 1796. Measles vaccine became available, okay, in 1963. And then a, an improved vaccine in 1968. A combination of uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, MMR, was available in 1971. And do me a favor, if you, don't go into your mind and start debating inoculations for a second. Just put that aside. I'm just using this as an intellectual argument, okay? So it was available in 1971. So I kind of step back and ask myself, how many people died in the United States after 1971? I was just curious. By 1980... This disease had decreased by 80%. And then in 2000, it was completely wiped out. It was eliminated in the United States. So then the question for me is, how many people died around the world because they didn't have access to this medicine, to this vaccine? Our answer, well, we can't just give it away. That's ridiculous. You can't just give it away. Measures to prevent malaria have been known, wait for it, since the 1640s. So all these people, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people die of malaria. There was a cure known in the 1640s. Again, why are children still dying in 2018 of this disease? I know they're dying. You know they're dying. The rest of the world knows they're dying. The pharmaceutical companies know they're dying. And they're still dying. Get these dates down in your mind. 1796, 1640s. In the United States, the vast majority of people in the United States have clean drinking water. You've probably never met anyone in your life in this country who doesn't have clean drinking water unless something happened and their water got tainted for a period of months. We have proper nutrition. We have inoculations if we choose them. We have good medical care. All of these things, all, all of these things prevent diseases. If you, take out, if you take out the inoculations, even the, the medical treatments that we have, and, the, and the pro, if we have proper nutrition and we have clean water, that, that in itself eliminates so many of these diseases. Why don't we offer it to the rest of the world? And I'm not, don't get political on me. Just, just think through. I'm talking about specifics here. Could human beings 
do this? The answer to the question is yes. Why don't we offer to the rest of the world? Because people prevent it. Our world system prevents it. It could be done all over the world. We can turn deserts okay, into lush green pastures. We have the technology. Why don't we? It is not impossible. Here's my point. It is not impossible to eliminate most of the deaths on Emily's list. In the village that we work with in Nigeria, most of the people in those villages aren't dying of these types of diseases anymore. Most of them are not. Because we have engaged, we have invested our lives in other people's lives. Why aren't they dying of these diseases? Well, we've drilled over 180 boreholes around the state, making sure that people have clean drinking water, which is one of the major causes of where these diseases come in and wipe out so many people. The, 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 um, the chief, last time I was there, told me that year after year, there's diseases that come through every single year, as far back as he can remember, and he was an old man. But he said in the last couple of years, he said, it hasn't happened why? Because they have clean drinking water. So a little, five or six, seven little children who would have been dead are not because they were drinking clean water. We make sure they have proper medical care. We give medications for AIDS. Um, we make sure to the best of our ability with our farm that we have nutritious foods. We help with education. We have, we have preventative medications that we give. We have like things that go on that help that are preventative medical care. We've created jobs to allow people to take care of their own families. And when they do get sick, they're able to buy the medicines necessary to help their families. That's one church saving thousands and thousands of lives. One church, Grace Chapel, saving thousands and thousands of lives because we care. Since 2000, more than a billion children in high-risk countries were given MMR vaccines. And, and it's just this mass um, vaccine campaign that they had. As a result, global measles deaths have decreased dramatically. But why did it take 30 years why did it take 30 years when you have a cure that's hundreds and hundreds of years old? According to the World Health Organization, 145, I want you to, don't, I'm going to give you a number. Don't just think it's a number. Think of it as human beings with families. So when that person dies, they're all suffering. 145,000 people around the world have died from measles in 2013 alone. Alone. Why? I ask why. Why all that suffering? No, oh God, why? why? If there's a God, then why? You know, someone told me last week, when you point your finger, their grandmother told me, when you point your finger this way, there's three more fingers pointing at you. I said, Amen. People are dying every day, and most people, honestly, I'm just being honest, people are dying every day, and most people around the world don't care, literally don't care to lift a finger to do anything about it. Most people sit in their comfortable houses, and they have all their stuff and do absolutely nothing. They do nothing. Those with political power do little or close to nothing. Unless it's to their benefit. If it's to their benefit, oh, they're all over. They can do all kinds of amazing things. But most of the time, they do little or nothing. But when people, when people, 
When good people decide to act, they're capable of reducing much of the suffering in the world. I didn't say all of it. I said much of it. Much of the suffering in the world. If we care, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it. What are the... I'm going to trick the, trip this guy up. Jesus, what is, what, are the greatest, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And the second, that is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not a suggestion, an absolute command by God. Love your neighbor. Let me say that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Philippians chapter 2 says, consider others better than yourselves. So if I'm considering some, if, if I know that there's a disease coming through and I can do something to take care of all my children, make sure all my grandchildren have everything they need, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that disease doesn't come anywhere near my people, the people I love so much. Consider others better than yourselves. And then she says, but few and far between are the political leaders that make those horrible decisions to go to war. And my response is, what's worse? And let me just stop for just a second. Just because you have a war doesn't mean it's wrong. There are righteous wars. When someone decides that all Jews should be wiped from the face of the earth and anyone who does not live up to that person's standards like the Nazis should be eliminated from human existence, it is not wrong for Jeff Greer to pick up a rifle or anything else and go and defend the lives of those who can't defend themselves. I understand that some wrong, wars are wrong, but not all wars are wrong, especially when it's people like that who want to have a genocide and wipe out a group of people. What's worse, I said, to go to war or to sit back, to sit back and watch millions and millions of people die over the centuries. The sin of omission is as bad as the sin of commission. If I see someone being beaten up and dragged and they're going to go off and do whatever they're going to do to that person, and I say, well, I didn't do it. Not my business, but I'm watching. It's right there. I could, I could if I want to run over there and stop it, but I don't. The sin of omission is as bad as a sin of commission. It's all wrong, and much of it, my friends, is an absolute choice. People are still dying of measles. Why? People are still dying of malaria. Why? People, children are dying of diarrhea because they can't get fresh drinking water. They're dying from diarrhea. Why? People die of AIDS. Why? Children are still starving to death. Why? Your stinking right children are dying. Why? Because people don't care enough to make it, that make a change, to change it. I mean, I, I, I have a hard time when people do this to me now, when people come up and intellectually get me in these conversations. Oh, there's a loving God, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, man, God's probably going to ask you the exact same thing. What, what are you doing? That's why I like to ask people. Oh, there these kids, and they, oh, they get, there was a God. They go, they're all worked up about it. What are you, what, what, do you do anything for those kids? Well, no, I just like to bring it up. Have you ever gone anywhere or done anything or given any resources or started some, some program or started some ministry or started some organization that helps these people that you're so concerned about? Well, no, no, I'm just, you know. Here's the deal. And I'm going to say this more over and over again. This question is not as much intellectual as it is emotional. This is an emotional question. If you really care, if you're really asking the question about evil and suffering, it's an emotional question. That should drive us to action. Then she says, weather-related things. So, 
As for weather-related suffering, let me, let me share a few quick thoughts. And just answer me if you would. Do we have the technology right now, okay, to warn people about tsunamis? Okay, if you're, not, if you're confused by that, um, don't be. We do. We do. In the last, in this most recent tsunami that killed in Indonesia, 1,350 people, okay? That's, that, that's the, that killed nearly 1,350 people. My question was, why did those people die? And all of a sudden, I looked it up. Why did those people die? Indonesia didn't install a cutting-edge tsunami warning system because they were in dispute for, wait for it, they were in dispute over $69,000, the $69,000 cost. I looked, I started doing the math. That's $51 per life. $69,000. What if that was a tsunami that we had back in 2004 and 100,000, 200,000 people were killed? Over 69000 bucks. The questions would have been coming out. Why does God, how could God... I don't have all the answers, but when people throw out things like, let me, let me, let me give you a little, some of the facts. Some of the facts are that we had the technology, we had it back then, to warn people that there are tsunamis. Couldn't we create better housing for everyone in the world that didn't come crumbling down when there was an earthquake? You build these stacked up houses, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake, and they crumble like sand. Are we not capable of building housing that doesn't crumble like sand when there's an earthquake? Yes or no? Yes. Couldn't the Chinese government, threw that one out, couldn't the Chinese government, all governments, any governments, stop people from living along death zones in flood areas, okay, in shacks by the hundreds of thousands? Could they not stop those people knowing that those areas flood on a regular basis? Could we not stop that? Did the United States have the money, okay, and the knowledge about the wall in New Orleans before that happened. Did we have the money to fix the wall? We had the money and the knowledge to fix the wall. Were we not told 15 years before, if a major hurricane hits that wall, it will not sustain, it will not stand up, and you're going to get it flooding? Were we not told that 15 years before? I wrote, Emily, please don't think that I'm saying, and I'm not, I'm, and, I'm not, and I'm saying this to you. Don't think that I'm saying that all that humans could have prevented everything. We couldn't. I totally understand that. But let's at least be fair and logical about this. If you're going to throw out these statistics of all these people who died, and I know that a cure was come up within 1640, in 1796, in 1963, and after that millions of people still died... Well, what are we supposed to do? Just give it up? Yeah, we, yeah, okay, yeah, I, yes, that's what I'm saying. I'm not a communist, I'm not a socialist. But yeah, I can, I can think that human beings are smart enough to figure out how to make a buck still, which is, I'm not, I'm all about capitalism, okay? Make money, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But I'm also about using your, your mind and using your heart. And if you have something that will save millions of lives, figure out how to get it to them. Maybe we should all just sacrifice and choose to sacrifice to make sure those people have it. We don't have to just have our government do it. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We're trying to make a difference. Why don't we challenge other people and make a difference as well? 
So it seems to me that it's always after a disaster that we ask the questions, could this have been prevented? Could this have been prevented? And the answer is usually, yes, it could have been. But in the end, we face the hard, cold facts of humanity. It would have cost us a lot of money. But it costs us a lot of money. Can't just give this stuff away. See, here's the reality, though. Here's what we're really dealing with, guys. This is... This is what we're really dealing with. When people ask this question, when they, when, they, when they ask, why, doesn't, why does God allow earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and other natural disasters? That they're, they're asking, why would God allow those things? I said to Emily, if you don't believe in God and you, and you don't believe in the Bible's true, then it's hard for me to explain to you um, a fallen world. That we as human beings live in a fallen world. But I said to her, if for no other reason, even though if you don't, you don't believe in God or you don't believe in the Bible, if for no other reason, I'll explain it to you just to explain to you my worldview. Okay, because I, I at least have an answer to those questions. And here's another thing. Um, I find it fascinating when something bad happens in nature, when you have a, a catastrophe of some kind, they call it an act of what? But God gets absolutely no credit at all when the weather is good, which is most of the time. Do these same people sit around and they go outside and it's like 72 degrees and there's a nice bright breeze and everything's going great. and they're, they Oh, thank you. They, they get on their knees and thank God because of the beautiful weather. Is it an act of God when things are fine, which is most of the time? No. It's not. They only have, when, it's a, when it's something goes wrong, then somehow it's God who's responsible. God created the whole universe. Here's our worldview, okay? God created the whole universe and the laws of nature. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is in control, okay, holds together all of nature. Jesus holds all of nature together. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'll have this. It's, it'll be online. I'll send this in this week with Pastor Jeff. I'll have all these statistics and all this stuff for you. Um, and it's in, the, it's in the book as well. God, could God prevent natural disasters? Yes. So you ask me, could God prevent natural disasters? Yes. God could choose, in some cases, to prevent natural disasters. Does God influence the weather? The answer is, yes, he does. We see this in James chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 17. There's more scriptures than that, but yes, God, God influences the weather. In Numbers chapter 16, verses 30 through 34, it shows that sometimes, sometimes God causes natural disasters as a response to sin. There's literally things going on. If you read history, and I I want to get into it right now, but I, I love history. If you read history, you see how actual weather events at specific times stopped Things from happening historically, like wars, when there's a war and all of a sudden they were about to, and then this big weather event happened and they couldn't do it. And by that time, these people were able to do this and were able to defend themselves. It's amazing how many times it happens. So yes, God, God does, okay, use natural disasters sometimes as a judgment against sin in people's lives, okay, against a a nation or whatever. That's just biblical. Is every natural disaster a judgment from God? No, it is not. 
It is not. And I, I'm just going to say this from my heart here a little bit. When, when New Orleans got, the, the, when the wall broke and it came down, I heard these Christians like, oh, this is a judgment against New Orleans for all their sin and God just wiped. That is, seriously? Did God come to you personally and tell you that? Because if he didn't, don't say things like that. Don't say things like that. You don't know that's the case at all. And how about all the, how about all the believers in Jesus Christ who were wiped out and the same, were killed? That kind of stuff, you need to be real careful. Just We Christians sometimes just throw things out and not realizing the implications of what we're saying. God didn't, how do you know? You don't know. I don't think that was the case at all. So I'd argue that wasn't the case. Here's the case. In much the same way that God doesn't stop every individual person from inflicting sin on or inflicting suffering and harm on other people, the evil that they inflict. He doesn't stop every single person from doing that. God allows the earth to reflect the consequences of the, that sin has on the creation. God allows okay, these consequences of sin to, to, to happen. He allows the earth to reflect the consequences that sin has had on creation. The fall of humanity affected everything, including the world in which we live. The fall of humanity affected everything, including the world in which we live. That's why we have the natural disasters and those kinds of things that we have. Romans says that, that, that creation groans. It groans waiting to be, waiting to be freed, if you will. And and the Bible says that God absolutely is going to bring, and I think sooner rather than later, God is going to bring an end to all evil and suffering through Jesus Christ. Through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We talked about this last week. The end of evil and suffering will come. What we're longing for, okay, a new heaven and new earth will come. It is coming. God has an answer to all of this. Emily's response, I would rather remain silent than to invent some cruel fantasy that just raises more questions. For me, it's much more logical and satisfying to accept that it's just good old-fashioned luck or lack of luck that explains why one person gets sucked up into a tornado while his neighbor does not, why one child contracts malaria while his brother is spared, one house is bombed while the other stands, one soldier takes a bullet in the leg while the other loses his life. It makes me grateful to have what I have. I'm not grateful to God in this case. I'm grateful for. She says life happens. Life happens. We're the ones who apply meaning and lessons and grief and worry and gratitude and laughter. And sometimes we even invent religions. And my response was, Emily, do you actually believe that telling someone that it was luck is more compassionate than what I would share. I can tell you this, it's not more satisfying. It is not more satisfying. I don't believe what I share is a fantasy, and neither do they. When someone's child is sick, I don't try to give people, and I don't try to give people pat answers. I just give them my love and my compassion and my comfort. But I do, I do try to answer the questions that people are asking. When people are suffering, they ask questions. They ask the why questions. The why questions are what make life, okay? It's the why questions. How and when and all that kind of stuff. It's the why questions that really, really matter. 
Emily, when you sit with people who are going through a tragedy, I promise life happens and it's just pure luck. It's not what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And honestly, it's not true. So it's not what people should hear. It's not what they want to hear. It's not what they need to hear. And it's not what they should hear. Honestly, guys, this, this question... You know, I can sit here and I can have intellectual conversations. You say 300 million people. I say it was 1796 and we could have eliminated 300 million. I can get all the intellect. I have the intellectual, intellectual conversations, most of them down. Okay? This is not just an intellectual discussion. This is an emotional discussion. When people are, are truly suffering, they're asking the questions from the heart. They want to know why. They're actually suffering. Uh, you have no idea the kinds of questions that I have had to answer in the last two weeks that have nothing to do with this series. I'm the pastor of the church. When apologetic t- experts go into universities, the university student stands up and asks a question. It's awesome. I love it. I watch them. They're fantastic. But the apologist is answering a question from a student, and it's usually an intellectual back and forth. And I know apologists have to do this as well, but pastors have to do this all the time. These questions are not intellectual questions when, they're at, when people ask me about it. People aren't asking me questions, and let's get into an intellectual debate, pastor. People are dying, and they want to know, what, what do I do now? How do I, how do I prepare my family? How do I live my life? How do I do this? How do I do that? What do you think about? How do you think I should handle? What are, and they're asking me real questions, real questions because they're dealing with real pain. And my frustration sometimes is I do have, I don't, I'm not God. I can't answer. I don't understand everything. I don't know why certain things happen sometimes. I don't understand. I don't know why. But at least I have some answer. At least, I, at least I answer the question from the bottom of my heart to the best of my ability according to the word of God. But if you ask an atheist, why am I suffering? You know what their answer is? There it is, right there. Nothing. Luck. Good old-fashioned luck. When life brings suffering... It is God, okay? And I have, I, this, is, this is lived out in experience, in experience not, just, not just intellectual discussions. This is lived out from experience and reality of watching real people get cancer or real people get some other disease or real people go through something and end up passing and real people going through this and God intervening in their lives and me watching and going, I cannot believe this person has such incredible faith. This builds my faith just watching them experience this they're amazing but it is god it is god it is the, god is the one who brings meaning god is the one who brings lessons god is the one who brings who brings a, a presence if you will god is the one who brings purpose god is the one who brings beauty out of the ashes it is god who's the one who brings promise it is god who is the one who brings hope it is god who's the one who brings joy it is god who's the one who brings peace to that person it is god who's the one who brings contentment In the midst of the worst suffering that you and I could possibly imagine, I've watched believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ be completely content and at peace. I think Paul put it best in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He said this, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content. Listen to this. Don't listen to it with your heart and your mind. 
I've learned the secret of being content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. There is a massive difference between people without Christ who go through suffering and end up dying and people who are with Christ and go through that same suffering and end up passing. There is a massive difference of how they handle it. You know why? Because many of them have, have learned an eternal perspective and through their suffering, they have learned what it means to have an eternal perspective. When most people who are atheists, can only have a temporal perspective. Let me explain something to you. This question is not just intellectual, it is emotional. And you cannot truly understand this question without an eternal perspective. You cannot understand this question without an eternal perspective. You want to understand the question, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Why am I suffering? Why is this? Why, why, why? You look at it from an eternal perspective. Because the moment you bring it into a temporal perspective... You've lost perspective. I was reading There Is a God by Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was the father of atheism. Stick with me on this for a second. Anthony Flew is the father of atheism. And he wrote a book, There Is a God. When Anthony Flew was 15 years old, he rejected belief in God because of this question of suffering. Because it's a tough question. There are some of you sitting here this morning who have walked away from God and come back because of this question, because it's so difficult. Anthony Flew, 15 years old, with his 15-year-old mind, intellectually, he rejected, and emotionally, he rejected God because of his idea of suffering. But he also remembered what he learned from C.S. Lewis's Socratic Club. C.S. Lewis had what was called the Socratic Club at Oxford. And C.S. Lewis and the Socratic Clubs, this was their motto, always follow the evidence wherever it leads. Always follow the, ev- always follow the evidence wherever it leads. His journey brought him back to God. Anthony Flew's journey brought him back to God after, after living as an atheist for over 60 years of his life. Why? Because he followed the evidence. Because he followed the evidence. The man is no, Anthony Flew is no irrational fool. Okay? This guy was intellectually a giant. He was no irrational fool. And he had, and here's the thing. I want you to think this through. From an emotional standpoint too, as a human being. He had every reason to hold on to his worldview. Even if it changed in his mind to hold on to that worldview. That was his identity. The father of atheism. He had every reason to hold on to that worldview. Every reason but one. An honest, intellectual, and heartfelt search for truth would not allow him to. Because he started asking the why questions. He started asking questions. And what does the Socratic Club teach him? Always follow the evidence to its logical conclusion. The father of atheism Believed in God at the end of his life because he followed the evidence to its logical conclusion. I said to Emily, you say it's irrational and illogical to believe. And for for reasons you've shared, you've chosen to reject faith in God. You're comfortable having no answers, honestly, let's just be honest, okay? You're comfortable having no answers to some of life's most profound questions. Who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? Where am I going? 
But those who try to search for answers wherever the evidence may lead are not irrational or illogical. They're just searching for truth. You should all be truth seekers. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Be truth seekers. I would rather spend the rest of my life seeking out truth than rest my mind, than rest my mind on the thought that luck is my final answer. And here, if you're an atheist or you're kind of struggling, I mean, I have to, okay. If you eliminate faith in God, you, I, God does not exist, okay? So now you feel like, boom, I've made my decision. Now I feel comfortable. No, 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 no. You can't do that. You've now eliminated God. Now you have to answer the same questions that brought you to the place where you said, I don't believe in God. You've got to answer those same questions now without God. Answer them. i got to answer them as a pastor. Why am I dying, Pastor. What am I going? How do I do that? How, what, how about this? Why is this? Why does God? Why? Why is? Why am I in so much agony? And why is? And I got to answer all those questions. If you deny faith in God, okay, you have to ask yourself: You came from a primordial soup. What's your purpose? What is the purpose of life? Do not intellectually go to sleep. Have the courage. Have the honesty to answer the same exact questions. That brought you to the place where you are right now. Because when you do that, you're going to find what Siri said when I asked her. Good question, Jeff. It is a good question. Answer the stinking question. And if you can't answer the stinking question, you may have to go back and reevaluate your thoughts again. Let me close by saying this. I understand better than most people in the world how difficult, how challenging these questions are. I understand that. It's not just intellectual, it's emotional. But once again, I want to refer you back to a quote from G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton said this, when belief in God becomes difficult, our tendency is to turn away from him. But this is where I want you need to hold on to this. When, when, when things become difficult, okay, when belief in God becomes difficult, our tendency is to turn away from him, but in heaven's name to what? God is real. I know this for an absolute fact. There is a God. And more than anything else, all these intellectual arguments, are, they're fine. But guys, this is life itself. You must answer these questions whether you choose to reject God or you choose to believe in him. You must answer these questions and not just let your mind go to sleep. Have the courage to answer the questions. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time that we can spend together. And God, I know how challenging, I know how challenging this is for every single person here. These are hard questions. They're not just emotional. They're not just intellectual questions, Lord. They're emotional questions because we all suffer and we all desire answers. I pray, dear God, that we would be the kind of church that would try our best to answer the questions. But more than that, we would offer compassion and comfort and love and support and encouragement as we're going through these challenges. And that, Father, your Holy Spirit would teach us, teach us. Strengthen us. Help us to understand an eternal perspective. Because this life is just a mist. 
It's a vapor here today and gone tomorrow, but we will spend eternity with you. Help us to have that eternal perspective. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray it. Amen. Have a great week.